Hello and welcome to the first episode of Everything Hydrogen, a show that converts the technical to the relatable and explores how hydrogen might change the energy world as we know it. My name is Andrew Leadham. I'm an associate director here at Inspiratia. And throughout this podcast, we're going to be talking, surprisingly, about all things hydrogen and hydrogen fuel cell related. If you're new to this world, we are also going to be producing a short Hydrogen 101 review and technology overview. That is a separate episode, which you can find on the same site as this episode. As always, I'm excited to have with me Chris Jackson and Patrick Malloy, who'll be co-hosting with me throughout the series. Chris is a hydrogen and fuel cell consultant working for the World Bank and Inspiratia, amongst others. Patrick is a senior associate with the Rocky Mountain Institute's Sunshine for Minds program here in Washington, D.C. It's a pleasure to have you both with me, and uh, let's get started. Okay, so Chris, let's start with you. Why are we talking about hydrogen now? Why, why are we having this podcast? What's the deal? <laughs> All right. So so look, Andrew, hydrogen is one of these things that uh, when you mention it, most people probably think of the Hindenburg. And fuel cells are one of these things that when you mention people think of nuclear fusion. So, you know, between the two, it's not a great combination. One is something that's extremely unsafe. The other is one that's been promised for 20 years and is always another 20 years away. So, So why are we talking about them now? Well, there's two different parts. Hydrogen we're talking about now because it's already an enormous market. It's a $100 billion a year market. 50 to 60 million tons of hydrogen is produced a year, depending on how you want to count it. And it has to be decarbonized. Right. I mean, this is a market that is predominantly based on uh, the creation of a molecule that comes from carbon dioxide intensive industries such as coal and natural gas. It can be decarbonized through the use of electrolysis, and that's part of something we're going to talk about here on the podcast. But regardless of anything else, part of the clean energy transition will require people to produce hydrogen and to produce it in a clean way. So that is an addressable market for investors today, here and now. And it's a market that is being looked at seriously by investors and by corporates here and now. So that's one of the reasons we're talking about this. The next reason we're talking about this whole topic is because of fuel cells. Fuel cells come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes and different forms of technology. But broadly speaking, all fuel cells rely on hydrogen, whether they get that hydrogen a pure form, whether they get it through methane or natural gas, uh, whether they get it through methanol or whether they get it through ammonia. They all still rely on hydrogen and they just extract it from whatever the more complex uh, structure is that they originally take. And fuel cells are interesting, and and Patrick will talk a little bit more about probably why this is interesting, but essentially we're interested in them for several reasons. One is mobility. There are clear limitations to what batteries can do. It is not reasonable or feasible that in every part of the world you're going to be able to add in super fast, rapid charging for large-scale mobility, trucks, buses, trains, and planes, and ships. You simply cannot do it. It has to be a molecule-based solution, and most global policymakers, researchers, and corporates have concluded that hydrogen either in its pure form or in some modified form like ammonia or methanol, will be the key to unlocking that part of the decarbonization story. The other aspect of this is that fuel cells, unlike solar and wind, are dispatchable and can run continuously. So at some fundamental level, you do need to have power generation solutions that don't just last two hours or four hours or maybe even eight, like a battery. You need something that can last longer. 
And perhaps most crucially, you need something that can take all the huge amount of power that's generated at different times of the year, this seasonable, seasonal variability issue, where in the summer we create lots of solar electricity, lots of wind electricity, but then in the winter we generate far less. And so we have to find a mechanism of capturing all that excess power that we generate in the summer and shifting it several months through to the winter and then using that. And battery technology simply can't do that. And into that context, we're now looking at fuel cells and on a very serious level, Policymakers and companies are concluding that we simply cannot achieve the climate goals without looking at these technologies. Yeah, and, that, and that's a good point to, to, to segue a little bit because, you know, as, as Chris has, has laid it reasonably, very clearly, right? Not, not even reasonably. Uh, this is a very substantial market already today. And that decarbonization uh, challenge is, is substantial if that market was even static. The problem is we're expecting huge growth in it. We're expecting that to compound by virtue of the fact that, you know, generally economic development forecasts will push global economy more and more. We'll consume more and more of the things that we like to consume when we can afford them. And long and short, the market for hydrogen is something that has to be addressed now by virtue of the fact that if we don't, we're going to fundamentally miss the 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 foundation uh, foundation stone of, of of meeting these targets where, where this is optimistic i think rather than kind of talking about targets and missing targets or not missing targets is that hydrogen has a dynamism and an application dynamism that that an awful lot of other types of energy doesn't have in the sense chris has spoken a little bit to energy generation uh, he's talked to storage capacity and whatnot like personally I, I'm very excited about the prospects around industrial decarbonization where you can you know go talk to steel manufacturers and you can talk to them about the prospect of having a zero carbon steel like green steel structure you can talk to them about uh, like more advanced forms of extraction you can talk to them about uh, essentially taking highly highly uh, complex systems within chemicals industry and making those zero carbon. Now, we get to some fun stuff that way, right? Because we get into a, a, a world where you apply hydrogen to a whole vast array of systems that today rely solely or heavily on, on, on fossil fuels. And if you, as, as Chris has mentioned, you know, you talk about green hydrogen, that being a renewably uh, generated electricity in the presence of water, water through an electrolyzer, you have an opportunity to have green manufacturing in a way that, that we haven't had before in our history. So the expansion of the hydrogen market is a mechanism uh, to, or to achieve and reach some of our, our actually more ambitious targets around decarbonization. And Patrick, your specialty uh, is extractives uh, or the extractive industry, if I'm not mistaken. If you could talk a little bit about what a hydrogen project would look like in terms of its application to the extractive industry, is that a question that makes sense? And is that a question that <laughs> you feel comfortable addressing at the moment? I, I think the, the, the answer is it can be uh, frankly, close to anything, right? Um, we have examples of of hydrogen applications on on mines, and particularly the Raglan mine up in uh, close to the Arctic Circle. Um, essentially, what we're we're really talking about here is dynamic systems, right? We're talking about integrating 
a solar or a wind resource or any other form of, of renewable power into a system, adding a storage component that has a, a callable capacity, right? So it addresses the challenge of, you know, intermittency, some resiliency issues. It also has a, a very clear kind of understood kind of construct for, for storage. And, you know, uh, like, I think there's a reasonable degree of questioning around the longevity and supply chain challenges for battery technology on mass rollout. That's not to say that battery technology won't have very clear, very strong applications. It's just a case of what else. And hydrogen, by virtue of its dynamism, gives you an application or an opportunity to apply it to different things, whether that be in the processing aspect, whether it be as a callable generation resource, whether by virtue of a, a kind of a gas turbine style structure or by by virtue of running through a fuel cell and then, you know, for instance, building your heat from a, a, a fuel cell into your industrial processing structure. So we have a vast array of options, but then, and we probably don't want to go into this, but it's system design structure. And, and that's where this is truly exciting because we have a vast array of options and it's about optimizing design. And, and I'd actually follow up on, on Patrick's point and say, you know, from, from a lot of the mining companies' perspectives, I think one of the things that maybe is difficult for investors to get their heads around is that we often talk about relatively mature power markets. You know, we talk about um, the US uh, in its various different isolations. So whether that's ERCOT or uh, New York, PJM, or um, or even in California, CAISO, um, or in Europe, obviously, we can talk about sort of the, the wider European grid or we talk about the UK. Um, in most of these applications, wholesale power prices are sort of below 100 dollars or 100 euros a megawatt hour or even 100 pounds a megawatt hour that's you know be fairly high if the average wholesale price was there but actually once you start getting into a lot of these more remote locations suddenly those prices that would sound almost laughable in the applications we think of for the power sector become the normal i mean and i think that's where the extractives industry is quite interesting as an early market because what i think a lot of people forget when they talk about hydrogen and fuel cells and and i think this is where actually the the battery electric vehicle on the mobility side, I think this is where the sort of the evangelicals of that cause get a little bit muddled is the world is bigger than Germany and California, right? Or even than London, you know, uh, once you start actually going out into a lot of the world, you realize that electricity and power generally is quite expensive. In some island locations, you know, wholesale power prices can be $400 a megawatt from the utility retail, right? At which point, all sorts of things suddenly become viable. There are countries in Africa where wholesale power prices are $1,000 a megawatt hour. Right At that point, almost anything becomes viable as a technology comparison. So if you're a mining company operating in the middle of nowhere, you know suddenly a whole range of things look very attractive if your alternative is that you have to then ship in diesel into the middle of nowhere with no roads, no security, and a huge risk of theft and no refueling opportunities no sort of base camps, that sort of thing. And I think that's what maybe some investors sometimes forget. And mining companies have picked up on this. And a good example of that is actually that Anglo-American runs two funds currently out of London. Uh, I think they've got about $200 million between these two funds, the South African government supporting them. And they're, ostensibly the aim is to produce promote technologies that consume more platinum. But actually, one of the big drivers for that is fuel cell technologies, because PEM fuel cell technology or proton exchange membrane technology, which is the core of a lot of fuel cell applications in transport today, uses platinum as a catalyst. 
And so as a result of that, there's a huge interest from the South African government to encourage that and Anglo-American too. So actually as a company, they are not just trying to look at it from a how do we grow our global market. They're also using it in operations. So it's kind of a nice overlay. Impala Platinum in South Africa has that angle too. And, and they're investing in companies. So High Gear, for example, that's based in the Netherlands. It's a spin out from Abengoa. One of their early investors is Anglo Platinum, is, is the Anglo Platinum Venture Fund. Um, but there are other companies as well in this space that they're investing in because mining companies do see this as a really exciting and interesting opportunity for them. And I mean, on that topic, and there's a, you know, this is also something we're going to explore in the next and subsequent episodes, but you're starting to touch on some notable projects. So I think the question for an investing audience or a group of people who are interested in this technology as an investment prospect one thing they're going to want to know is which geographical markets are pursuing this technology or where do you see this hydrogen technology being applied most frequently, most innovatively, and who's putting, from a private sector perspective, who is putting the money behind it? Before we speak to, to specific projects, maybe, maybe a, a regional aspect is kind of worth thinking about here. The Australian market is is advancing quite quite quickly in the sense of there's a huge amount of resources being invested there, uh, both in terms of projects that are being built, but also just general interest. And that's when we talk about infrastructure development and requirements. That makes quite a bit of sense if you think about how Australia as a, as a, as a continent, essentially, or subcontinent, is, is actually built out. Um, but also, if you if you look around the world, the amount of investment in in South Korea, in Japan, in China has been has been rapid. Um, and you know, when we come to the the United States, for example, you know it's been slower um, in in a sense of kind of changing industry. But you know, a large consumer of hydrogen in the United States right now is is in the oil refining process, right? Uh, in terms of cracking uh, hydrocarbons and, and making higher value kind of derivative products. Um, California, though, as a, as a separate entity, uh, has a, a reasonably sized kind of hydrogen fuel cell vehicle market. Um, and, you know, if you look at, I think it's Hyundai or Honda and, and Toyota have put in huge resources there to build out that market. In the very same way, if you go to Europe, BMW, um, Daimler, a few other groups have combined their efforts to start building out infrastructure for transportation. So this isn't so much a case of where and what regions so much as what aspect of markets in which regions you want to kind of focus on. And um, I think I think... You know, maybe maybe Chris, you can speak to specific projects that, that that are of interest to you. But but there is a dynamic kind of element to this this kind of market globally, where you can find projects that are in your space or proximate to to your world that are starting to uh, to evolve and emerge. Well, so I mean, just picking up on that. I mean, again, taking a step back, two different markets: hydrogen market, fuel cell market. Hydrogen market valued at 106 Chris, billion. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, sure. but it, one other thing, if you could touch on it, because I actually don't remember if we if we lost this earlier. Taking a step back very quickly, distinguishing between green hydrogen and blue hydrogen very quickly, then expanding on your point of the of the hydrogen versus the fuel cell, you know, distinction. Sure. So taking a step back, hydrogen today is a relatively mature, established 
market. It is a commercial product that's been purchased by companies for a long time that's used in a wide variety of applications. Traditionally, most hydrogen today comes from coal or natural gas. And this type of hydrogen we describe as grey hydrogen because it is a fossil fuel emitting process. Um, The interim step is called blue hydrogen, which is where you still continue to use coal or you use natural gas, but you add a carbon capture or a carbon capture usage application to it. And that then technically is considered as a carbon neutral solution. The third option for hydrogen is called green hydrogen. And green hydrogen is where you create hydrogen through the process called electrolysis. Electrolysis is where you run an electrical current through water across a membrane and as a result you create electricity sorry you create pure oxygen and you create pure hydrogen that is those are your two products so when we talk about the hydrogen market today we're talking about predominantly gray hydrogen when we're talking about the future of hydrogen and the potential of it what we're talking about is blue and green and that's an important distinction to start with so The market today in hydrogen is over $106 billion annually. Huge addressable market growing at a compound average growth rate of around 6 to 8% annually. So regardless of what we do, that has to be decarbonized. Around 97% of it is considered gray today. So that leaves a significant market that needs to become blue or green and significant opportunities for investors and companies to address that market need. When we then look at fuel cells, we're talking about a market that's valued at around $2 billion in sales annually. So much smaller, but growing very rapidly. Patrick's point is a relevant one, that it's important not to think of this in terms of simply which part of the world, but it's also about applications. So if you look to the world today, what you would see is that for portable applications and small stationary applications, Asia is a much larger market than anywhere else in the world. And the reason is because a lot of fuel cell applications that have been very popular are small fuel cell applications that can be used for resiliency and uninterruptible power supplies. Many people don't realize this, but some of the few power systems that ran in the US during Hurricane Sandy were fuel cell systems. In fact, islands like the Bahamas, the only reason the 911 system even worked in the Bahamas was because of fuel cell systems that ran. And I see in some of the notes that you actually sent over to me beforehand, before the podcast, you're pointing out that there are skyscrapers in London, there are skyscrapers in uh, New York. Apple's headquarters in California, these are all powered by fuel cell, right? This is maybe not necessarily hydrogen. It, it explain, you can explain that as well. But these are all huge, large-scale fuel cell applications. Right. And, and, and you're 100% correct. I mean, I think what people sometimes forget is that, um, you know, when we talk about fuel cell technologies, um, n- people often see fuel cell as synonymous with hydrogen. And part of that is the marketing of it. But it's a little bit misleading because most of the commercial fuel cells that we see today um, actually are not running on hydrogen, not pure hydrogen anyway. They run on either biogas, which is a combination of carbon dioxide and methane, or they run on natural gas, which is methane. Whether it is biogas or whether it is natural gas, it still includes in its chemical composition hydrogen. So the fuel cell is still running on hydrogen. It simply has a reformer that is added to the unit that splits the hydrogen out from the other components. So in the United States, a lot of companies, and you mentioned Apple, have decided that a really effective way of creating baseload, 
uninterruptible power supply to offset the variability from wind and solar and to provide a longer duration of power than batteries can provide, have said that fuel cells must be part of that answer. Bloom Energy would tell you that around 10% of the units that they have sold have a biogas element to them. And that's partly to address that sort of renewable aspect, but while also providing a sort of base load power generation. The natural gas side, though, is where you've seen most of the growth in stationary fuel cell applications. And you talked about London. I think a lot of people don't realize how ubiquitous these actually are. The walkie-talkie, for example, in London, the famous skyscraper building, around 15% of all the power in the walkie-talkie comes from a 300-kilowatt fuel cell that runs in the basement. And it's actually a combined heat and power fuel cell, which is really interesting. So it's not simply providing electricity from the natural gas. It's also providing commercial heat to warm the building during winter. And that boosts the efficiency dramatically. So you don't simply avoid the losses in electricity from the transmission and distribution. So it's not simply the case of you're more efficient because instead of generating from a huge power plant outside of London and then transmitting the power through transmission lines into London, you're not just saving on that because you're producing locally. You're also saving because instead of having to run a boiler as well as running a domestic power plant, you're effectively getting the best of both worlds. And in New York, as you mentioned, there are a number of buildings that use fuel cells. And one of the ones that's quite famous is that Morgan Stanley's headquarters, the top of the skyscraper, actually has a fuel cell that runs on that too. Welcome back to the show. So, Chris, Patrick, seems to me the distinction you guys are making is that fuel cell technology, the branding, the marketing... The discussion has all centered around the transportation sector and the hydrogen fuel cell technology as an engine for the passenger vehicle, right? But I think uh, the most promising application of hydrogen fuel cell technology for the transport sector today is the heavy transport, commercial transport, uh, municipal transport sector, buses, commercial trucking, uh, some longer distance trucking. I mean, if you guys could address that technology a little more directly and how it competes with, you know, battery electric, that's popular. Tesla's popular these days. Guys, why is Tesla wrong? Well, no, that, <laughs> over that, to you, Patrick. That's, and, and that is the question, right? Like, I, I don't think it's about wrong or right so much as, you know, finding the right tool for the, for the right challenge, right? So you talked about, for instance, kind of a heavy trucking and freight, right? I, like, this is about duration on the road. It's about transportation over long distances, right? So a long charge rate for a battery electric vehicle uh, is a challenge for that structure unless the battery is sizable enough to cover the entire range. Okay, fine. But what capacity is then absorbed by virtue of oversizing the battery relative to the whole? Uh, one of the advantages you have when you, you, you talk about a fuel cell electric vehicle is that it is a small enough uh, kind of essentially system that you get a pretty solid range on that you can refuel in practically the same way as you refuel today any vehicle. So to, if we're talking about you know trucking, it's going to be kind of diesel refill. So for 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, depending on the size, and you're ready to go again. And, and it is about a question of use and range, right? So is it, is it 
you know, do you want the truck on the road 24 hours a day? If the answer to that is yes, there's some constraints. If you were talking about other use in systems, right? So one of the one of the interesting examples in in Germany is the 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 island. Uh, my pronunciation. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, that's a fully uh, licensed now uh, fuel cell uh, hydrogen fuel cell train that that runs on on you know Germany's commercial uh, train infrastructure, right? Or rail lines. So. If you're if you're going down that road, there is distinct advantages around the fact that you don't have to build out huge infrastructure. You don't have to talk about mass electrification. You don't have to talk about kind of uh, charging infrastructure and, and duration and whatnot. It's it's about a a kind of almost a modular drop and uh, and drop and go kind of system, in that the the structure resides on the train. You fill up the the the, the tank on the train. You fill up the tank in the truck, and it goes. That's the advantage that they have in in the the heavy duty sector, uh, and that specifically uh, gets better when you start adding weight. Well, and, and and picking up on that, I mean, look, when when it comes to mobility, the real reason why I think there's two reasons why I think um, not that Elon Musk is is wrong, but I think there's two reasons why you why fuel cells have an interesting application that aren't considered. I think it'd be fun to start a war with Elon Musk on here. So, you know, let's, let's, let's give it a shot, guys. If he's wrong, he's wrong, all right? Well, look, I, I think there's two things that Elon Elon gets wrong. I think one is that Elon lives in California, which, you know, has a lot of amazing things going for it. But I think that, like a lot of people from California, there's a sense to think that that is the world. There is nothing beyond that and that what happens in California immediately must be everywhere else. To right? be fair to Elon, Elon Musk, he's South African, my friend. He may be South African, but I mean, you know, ironically, South Africa are one of the biggest advocates of fuel cells, so he's not a very good South African. Um, but look, I mean, you know, let, let, let's let's take two things, right? Shot across the bows. Shot across the bows. T- two things. One thing is about um, is frankly about how regularly you need to use these things, right? So, so one is about simply utilization rates. If I need to use my vehicle constantly and I need to be able to have a quick turnaround and I want a large range on the application, fuel cells are typically going to beat batteries. And there's several really obvious reasons why. One is that I don't need a supercharging infrastructure to get my fuel cell up and running. And this is something that people who do materials handling businesses have realized. So Amazon, for example, famously bought a significant chunk of Plug Power, which is a listed company that does hydrogen forklifts. And the reason they did that was because Amazon realized that rather than having to have a significant chunk of their warehouse space dedicated towards recharging batteries for the forklift trucks that they had and having to waste the time of their staff changing batteries between the ones on the forklift and those charging, they could simply have a hydrogen dispenser, refuel their forklift within one or two minutes and go. And so that utilization factor is really important. If you look at something like the Hyundai Nexo, which is the brand new SUV that Hyundai have released, it will do 500 miles of range on a fuel cell tank and it will refuel in five minutes. If you need to be constantly on the road driving long distances and you cannot afford to spend half an hour on a Tesla supercharger, there is no way that even if 
a Tesla is cheaper than the Hyundai, you're going to take the Tesla because you simply cannot afford to be spending that time recharging. So utilization becomes a really important reason why fuel cells are more attractive than battery electric options in mobility. So that's point one. Point two that is important here is to talk about California versus the world, right? And you talk about Elon Musk. So this is it, right? If I'm in Australia, if I'm in a major city, fine. I can find a supercharger. I can find my local charger. If I'm trying to drive between major cities in Australia, the idea that I'm going to have a sufficient grid capacity to supercharge my, you know, my battery electric um, truck is just garbage. You know, Aurora Energy, who did this research piece on the Tesla uh, Semi, said that when you try and charge a Tesla Tesla Semi, it's about 3,000 to 4,000 homes worth of demand suddenly hitting the grid, right? Now, unless you're prepared to build serious grid capacity out into remote areas to provide that kind of charging capability, it's just not going to work. And anyone who's worked in EV deployments in, you know, EV supercharger deployments in markets like the UK or Germany or the Netherlands can tell you it is really difficult to find capacity in rural areas, especially high levels of capacity. So when you then talk about things like these, you know, Porsche chargers that are 400 meg, 400 kilowatt. I was chargers. going to ask actually very right. specifically about the BMW. BMW, Porsche, Porsche, thank the, you. Yeah, well, it's BMW and Porsche, yeah. so you know, yeah. you pick your German automaker, right? Yeah, <laughs> they're coming out with a 450 kilowatt charger. There are two of those deployed in the world, right? And they're both at Porsche offices in Germany. So you know, the application is minimal at this point, but. But that's to say there are companies out there, Ionity, right? That's probably the bigger example or the better known one because it's a consortium of BMW, Daimler, Ford, VW, which includes Audi and Porsche, right? And they're saying, we're going to give you 350 kilowatts of charging speed all throughout Europe and pay us eight pounds, pay us eight Swiss francs, pay us eight euros. What's the answer to that? Why go hydrogen? Why is hydrogen a better option when... You can charge your Tesla in 10 minutes. Well, precisely. In theory. Precisely because these very same companies that you've listed are starting to invest in hydrogen infrastructure. Like, it, like let's let's be clear here, right? Like, these are great announcements. These are these are significant announcements. These have very specific kind of consequences. It will all help to decarbonize the, uh, the sectors that that they directly impact today. But. We talked about heavy industry and we talked about heavy use, right? That's a different market to the, you know, the drive from London to Edinburgh if you're, you know, talking in your, about your standard sedan, right? And the cost per t- of, t- of that time is quantified in a different way if it's a, a consumer vehicle versus an, a commercial vehicle actually transporting stuff, looking to, you know, we talked a bit about Amazon, right? Like hitting those deadlines and timelines and expectations for end-use consumers. That's a different conversation. And yet, as I said, we see the exact same people getting involved in hydrogen infrastructure because the use cases are specific and there are advantages to both in different ways in different markets. I mean, look, my, my old man always would have come with a line which says, follow the money. Right. I mean, and the largest battery electric vehicle market in the world is China. And I think it's telling the fact that despite being the world's largest battery electric vehicle market, bar none, and having the leaders in the space in many senses, China has said fuel cells is the future. 
And if you looked at the FT that was commenting on this in January, the FT pointed out that China spent $12 billion on helping to deploy fuel cell infrastructure and fuel cell technologies in China. And it's not just them. I mean, the Japanese as well have spent billions of dollars on this, and they've come out publicly and said the future will be hydrogen and South Korea as well. So I think you, you know, and and even the German large automotive companies have said this. It's telling, for example, that Bosch told Angela Merkel that they did not want to do batteries. They had no interest in doing batteries, and they didn't see the potential of competing there. But when it came to fuel cells, Bosch have already bought shares in major fuel cell companies and have said that we want to be involved in that. So if you want to look at where the major automotive companies and the major countries in the electric mobility space are targeting, the message is clear. Yes, battery electric vehicles is important. Yes, right now they are big. But the overwhelming message coming out is the future is fuel cell, at least on the heavy mobility side and the medium uh, medium demand side. There's no question on that. But I think that I think that's to the point that Look, the two aren't necessarily direct competitors, right? I mean, they are direct competitors in many senses, but it, they don't need to be. They can be complementary, right? To your point, Bosch has also invested heavily along with Daimler and BMW in Hubject, which is a, a battery electric e-mobility service provider that's going to provide interoperability across the U.S., North America, and Europe, right? So, the, I mean, I think... There a lot of these companies, as you guys were pointing out with the with the OEMs themselves, they're cross investing in just about everything, right? And so, I, or in both technologies, not just about everything. But that's kind of the point, right? They can be both. Part part for of, now. Part part of the the reason we we end up in this kind of conversation though is because there's a there's a path dependency kind of aspect here, right? Which is that we have been used to thinking about. You know, how do you drive your car? You drive your car, you go to the petrol station, gas station, you fill up, you get either, you know, your petrol or your diesel or whatnot, and you go along. And the future is probably, at least the the projectable future, is probably a more dynamic uh, combination of energy sources rather than uh, just a specific kind of single use point uh, with, you know, not really very diverse types of products that are derived from the same the same barrel of oil. Um, and, and consequently, we kind of expect this, this universal kind of, you know, standardized kind of approach, whereas what we're going to see is, and especially, you know, if you want to take this entire conversation and step it up a level, like the transition from... Uh, petroleum and and diesel products in transport is going to see electric vehicles, it's going to see hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, it's going to see, and and we have seen in parts of the world, LNG vehicles, etc., etc. And the point being that this is going to be part of life around the decision-making, purchasing, consumption patterns, etc., etc., and strategic investments as we go forward. And where you you view that use case and that that market moving is is something that these companies, I would say, are are hedging their position on, but they're also making a differentiation between different types of products that precisely don't necessarily compete in the same market, and where they have overlap, there is an, a wonderful opportunity for hybridization to to hit kind of intermediate tiers of, of that transportation and mobility market. Yeah, I mean, as, as we've sort of talked about before, there is such a wide range of discussion we can have on this. I mean, I think what's worth pointing out right now is, to Patrick's point, um, 
companies are involved in a hodgepodge of things. So, for example, um, Shell is um, is involved in all sorts of battery storage projects. It's involved in all sorts of uh, concepts around electric mobility. And yet, at the same time, Shell is also one of the largest companies in terms of hydrogen refueling stations and being involved in that space. Um, you could also look at companies like OMV, for example, in Austria, where OMV is looking at hydrogen despite having a, a share, a ownership stake in a car sharing company or car ride company. And the reason they're involved in hydrogen is because actually one of the core components to refining processes for creating petrol and diesel is hydrogen. And a big debate in Europe at the moment is, could you decarbonize transport in the next five and 10 years by replacing the gray hydrogen that goes into refineries with green hydrogen so that the petrol that you use at the pump and the diesel that you use at the pump has less emissions than it would have done. And so that's also an area that lots of people in the immediate term are saying, well, that's quite interesting. So as Patrick says, there's all these different aspects that are kind of playing into this. And so in a sense, it kind of looks from a distance as though corporates are kind of throwing money at everything. And and it's maybe sometimes hard to discern the strategic rationale behind it. But it is actually a bit clearer, I think, than people realize. I, I think what maybe is, is also important and, and very quickly to mention here is that a lot of people who understand hydrogen and fuel cells are people who looked at this in the 90s and the 2000s, where there was a huge amount of buzz and hype about the world future of hydrogen and the future of fuel cells. And we haven't really talked about it here, but I think one of the reasons why that sort of failed and why that's created a lot of skepticism is because we kind of had two big barriers. One was that green hydrogen was phenomenally expensive in the early 90s and 2000s. And really, that's because at the time, we didn't have the low cost of solar and wind that we see today. And we didn't have the trajectories that we see today. So one part was the hydrogen just didn't seem to make sense. The other aspect was that the fuel cells themselves were overcoming multiple challenges. You didn't really have car chassis that were designed to be electric. You didn't really have fuel cells that ran for a reasonable number of hours. And actually, the efficiencies were pretty poor. So, you know, in terms of life, for example, you know, the DOE's target was if we can have a car that runs for three and a half thousand hours on a fuel cell in 2006, that was a win. Whereas today, you know, you're seeing six, seven, eight thousand hours on a fuel cell car. That's not an issue. You know, for buses, the target was, let's see if we can try and shoot for 18,000 hours. Today, there are fuel cell buses running in London that are doing 34,000 hours and counting. So I think that's one of the big things that people haven't realized from the past that has changed to now is that the systems are much more developed than before. They last much longer. The efficiencies are much higher. I mean, a PEM fuel cell we use in transport used to have a 30% efficiency. Today, they're running at nearer 55% efficiency. Electrolyzers used to be, you know, if it was a PEM electrolyzer, maybe 50%. Today, you get PEM electrolyzers running at 74%, right? Alkaline electrolyzers will run up to 84% today. So people just don't realize that. So, so you've had a cost decline, an efficiency improvement, a stack lifetime improvement, and you've had a fall in wholesale electricity prices. And that combination is really powerful. So a lot of these barriers that people also used to think about have gone. And the corporates have realized this. I mean, you know, we've talked about only a handful of the companies really involved in this space. But if you want to see some of the players involved, go on the Hydrogen Council website and have a look and tell me how many major corporates that you'll find there that are not, you know, 
how many major car companies in the world are not already members of that. And that, I think, gives you an indication of how major companies have woken up to this and realized this is not what we thought it was in the 1990s. This is no longer a hypothetical what if. This is a when. And I think it would actually be really fun to have an episode on this podcast series where we talk about why hydrogen has failed in the past. That'd be kind of cool. But on that note, since we are probably running out of a bit of time, I think what we should, I know the plan is to have follow-up episodes where we talk about specific projects, specific applications, what the uh, what investors are looking at, what inv- what companies are involved in uh, in new projects in different regions. But very quickly, both of you guys, if you were an investor looking at hydrogen technology, where would you be putting your money? Hope you've thought about this already. Yeah, I, I, I think we are about to see some pretty substantial, and when I say about, I don't know, I can't put a precise timeline on it, but in the next couple of years, we're going to see pretty significant cost reductions by virtue of scaling, some some technological advances around both electrolyzers and fuel cells. I, I would expect we'll see a little bit of both. So it'd be very interesting to see where those those companies that are involved in this space is their consumer uh, profiles stand today versus where they'll stand in a couple of years because I suspect they'll be a lot more healthy. I, do, I, I don't doubt that there's plenty of other areas and other kind of direct applications within industry that you can probably find value in. Um, I'm just going to try and keep those ones to myself. No, not really. <laughs> so, well, I mean, I chatted to Patrick about this before. I mean, look, in terms of listed equities, I mean, in terms of what you could invest in today, um, there are a range of pure play uh, hydrogen providers or fuel cell providers. In terms of project finance, I think what people need to realize is that there are some really serious projects that are being developed right now. Um, Noen in Australia is developing a half a billion dollar project to do solar wind batteries and electrolyzers. Uh, HDF Energy's project in French Guiana is $105 million is the current estimate. Um, So, you know, these are just giving you some sort of flavor of the scale that's going on out there. So I think there is a role for project finance. In the US, you see a lot of this on fuel cells that run on natural gas. What you haven't seen so much of this is on people that provide hybrid systems. And I know that certainly on the mobility side as well, it's quite difficult for some of these fuel cell providers that don't have large balance sheets to provide long-term warranties and to do long-term leasing structures. But actually, I think a financial service institution that's looking to try and be a little bit ambitious and broaden out in this space, I think that's the smart move. Excellent, guys. And with that ends our very first episode of Everything About Hydrogen. I want to thank you both for being here. I know some of us have some happy hours to get to. It's clear that we've only covered the tip of the iceberg today. But we'd love to hear from our listeners and hear about what you guys are interested in. And you can reach us anytime at podcasts, that's podcast plural, at inspiratia.com. I'd like to say thanks to Chris and Patrick. And you've been listening to Everything About Hydrogen, and we hope you'll join us for the next episode. Thanks.